to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, there is a humble creator from whom all things are, a wisdom which providentially directs and accompanies the changing of times and seasons, a love which binds all things in its embrace, making a unity of the immense diversity which colors the panorama of creation. To accept such words as a description of the real world and not a mere poetic idealization requires the gift of faith. The landscape we gaze on in real time in our world today suggests something far more chaotic, something far more barbarous, something far more broken. For this reason, last weekend, we heard the wisdom of God incarnate summon us to imitate His humility and meekness, that we might accept the gift of faith which allows us to see things as they really are and remain docile to the word of truth and thereby move ever further down the road that leads to the diverse union wherein all creatures more perfectly reflect the life of the Creator. As we will see today and for the next three weekends, such a reunification of all things has already been initiated but awaits perfection on the far side of eternity. Over the next three weekends, we will be treated to Jesus' presentation of several parables concerning the Kingdom of God. These parables can be, no doubt, as intriguing as confusing quite often leaving us wanting more while at other times just leaving us scratching our heads. That said, the first point to keep in mind is this. The Word of God, whose speech possesses the force of life and manifests the fullness of truth, in humbly assuming our human nature, has simultaneously assumed all that we are in experience, including the limitation that our language and our creaturely manner of knowing impose upon us. The Savior himself seems to have been frustrated by these limitations, exacerbated at times as they are by the ignorance resulting from sin. Thus we hear him asking his disciples and us, time and again, Do you still not understand? Of course, we ought not understand this frustration as impatience, much less as a condescending jab at those less well informed. Instead, the frustration of Jesus is born from the love that desires the free and peaceful harmony for which he created all things. It is born from a desire for things to be restored to the purpose for which they were created. The understanding needed to comprehend the mysteries spoken to us by our Lord come not from the human intellect, but from intimate relationship. What is required is not rigid logic, but the eyes of faith, opened by the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That this is the case is seen in our Lord's broken-hearted question to Philip, Have I been so long with you, and yet you do not know me, Philip? The coming of our Savior denotes the advent of everything the human heart longs for and the desire of God to completely give himself to us. Yet so often we fail to recognize in him the satisfaction of our every desire. And based on the many sermons I hear, I sometimes wonder whether we still believe that the gospel is what everyone wants more than anything else, whether they know it or not. 
The reason we remain so stubborn and hard of heart stems from our inability to know by loving. Nevertheless, in his humility, our Savior deigns to speak to us in ways we can comprehend, if only but a little at first. The parables we hear Jesus speak to us can be likened to a master artist who has poured out all of his gifts into creating an extravagant work of art in honor of his beloved. Having devoted himself to the perfection of every detail on the canvas and staged his work carefully, he unveils the image before her. However, the masterpiece she gazes upon means nothing to her. She knows nothing of art, nothing about the symbolic nature of the colors or the mastery of light and shadow needed to bring the canvas before her to life. Out of the relentless love that motivates him, the artist explains the beauty in every detail, pacing back and forth between her and the image, pointing to this brushstroke and that, gesturing with his whole body the way the light falls on every square inch of the canvas to give it a radiant quality, not with the hopes that some syllable uttered may awaken her to the greatness of his talent, but the profundity of his love. This is how we ought to imagine our Lord as he explains to us the reality in which we live and the love which guides its every moment, leading it to his embrace. We see the Master take a position of authority in the opening verse of our Gospel reading today from the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew tells us that, on that day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood along the shore. And he spoke to them at length in parables. If the dynamics of the scene setting sounds familiar, it is because they closely echo the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount, where we read, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Now, we could be quite pedestrian in imagination and assume that it was for the sheer practicality that our Lord had positioned himself just so in each occasion. And that may well have been the case, but nothing our Lord did was so boring or so devoid of meaning. His every movement was saturated with incarnate truth, and thus, even his sitting speaks volumes. By sitting, our Lord is taking the position of a Jewish rabbi, who did not stand as the Greeks did when they taught, but instead sat down. But notice please where he sits. The chair he assumes has awaited him from the beginning. The teaching seat of the Creator is the grand mountaintop and the vast sea. Thus, the evangelist describes an easily recognizable symbolic gesture from the Jewish culture of the day and supersaturates it with meaning by framing it on a cosmic level. For his part, just as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, the words spoken by Jesus, the eternal word of God through whom all things were created, will teach us about the underlying reality of all things. There's one more unique detail in Matthew's account we ought to take note of here before continuing. Jesus decides to teach from a boat. Recalling what was mentioned earlier, that the truth is known through relationship rather than sheer intellect, we may consider this setting to echo the Ark of Noah. Traditionally, the Ark has been seen as a figure of the church, both keeping the people of God safe from the dangers of the fallen world in order to ensure their survival, and serving as an indicator of truth in the midst of apparent disorder and chaos. Especially given our conversation two weeks ago concerning the church as the body of Christ, we might see in our Savior's teaching from within a boat a figure of his presence within the church, by which divine providence and the interior working of the Holy Spirit protects and promulgates the gospel in order to keep the human family safe for eternal life. In depicting the setting for us in this way, then, Matthew has done his part to awaken our imagination 
and see past the mundane in the images we hear our Lord describe, so that as he opens his mouth in parables, we will recognize them as revealing that which has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The mechanics of the parable taught by Christ today are very straightforward, yet the dynamics are infinitely complex, and this because the reality we live in is equally so. Moreover, there are layers upon layers to pull back over nearly every word, as we see from the very first line. A sower went out to sow. The most obvious understanding here is that God is the sower. However, we may additionally and simultaneously see the sower as the church, functioning as the body of Christ within history, proclaiming the very same good news first spoken by her head. With this understanding, the seeds, in this particular parable, in contrast to next week's parable, is the gospel message. And if we push the image to its furthest limits, the seed is the presence of the word of God himself, embedded within history by the incarnation. The various soil types then are human creatures, who, as creatures created in the image and likeness of God, have within our very nature a kapax day, that is, the capacity to be filled with divine life. What this means is that our very natures have been created precisely to be animated by the divine word, to allow his life to grow within us and thereby move towards our full flourishing as creatures created in the image of God. Jesus continues by telling us that some seed fell along the path and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground and quickly dried up for lack of soil. Still other seeds fell among the thorns and were choked out by the thorns which surrounded them. Finally, some seeds fell on good soil and bore much fruit. Now, because our Lord interprets this particular parable, there is not much detective work to be done here. However, we may ask why it is that this sower did not place these seeds more carefully, or why he did not take the time to prepare the soil in order that the seeds, once planted, would yield an abundant harvest. At this point, the complexity really sets in, but it is precisely in the complexity which the profound love of our God shines forth most clearly. If we are the various soil types, we might liken the path where the seed is vulnerable to the attack of the enemy to those who have never heard the gospel message proclaimed to them in its entirety, such that when they do finally hear it, any counter-argument, whether logical or experiential, is enough for them to turn away in disbelief. Perhaps the rocky ground represents those who have not had the fortune of growing up in a home where the gospel is spoken of, and a life of virtue emphasized, such that even the parts of the gospel they have heard mean little and are disregarded. Perhaps the ground containing thistles which choke out the word are those who live in poverty, whether material or moral, or those whose culture is so counter to the gospel message that even when it is heard, it is severely distorted or compromised, thereby yielding thistles instead of the profitable fruit. More than likely, the picture is not so simple. Rather, as we make our way through life, we are each of these three types of soil at various times, and sometimes all three at once. In some cases, this is due to our own shortcomings. In others, the social environment in which we live bears greater weight. Most often, it is a complex combination of the two. Reflecting momentarily on the complexity of this reality, then, more clearly reveals the patience, kindness, and mercy of our God. For regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, caused by ourselves or external forces, he will not cease to offer the word of his infinite love to us. He not only broadcasts it once in the remote chance that something may grow, but he continually scatters seeds of his word within us, providing us with the opportunity to produce the good fruit we have been created to, 
in every encounter with one another, and every last solitary element of his created world, which never ceases to proclaim the beauty of its creator. That said, the sower does not thwart or override the free will of the soil he seeks to cultivate. Try as he may to make the truth of his creation known, we may remain unwilling to accept his love for any number of reasons, in which case we remain as those who hear but never understand, and who see but never perceive, people whose hearts have grown dull, whose ears are heavy of hearing, and whose eyes they have closed, as Jesus tells us today. In describing those in whom the gospel fails to take root in this way, Jesus is paraphrasing the sixth chapter of Isaiah. It is a description reminiscent of that used by the psalmist in Psalm 115, where he writes that, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. Why the similarity between idols and those who fail to nourish the word of God in their lives? Because, as St. Augustine teaches time and again, we are transformed and become like that which we love. In his second homily on the first epistle of John, Augustine writes, Each person is as his love. Do you love the earth? You will be earth. Do you love God? What shall I say? Will you be God? Listen to scripture, for I dare not say this on my own. You are gods and sons and daughters of the Most High, all of you. If those words do not blow your mind, you need to check your pulse. The doctor of grace is teaching us that God desires to share nothing less than his very life with you. And his desire to share his life with you and nothing else is the reason for the incarnation. The reason the creator of the universe was willing to be born in poverty. God's desire to be united in loving relationship with you is the reason for the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, the crucifixion. God's desire for you is the reason that at every Eucharist, he offers the entirety of himself to you under the appearances of bread and wine. And then in consuming it, a unity so profound is forged that you become him. You become a more perfect member of his body, the church. All of these instances and countless others are the brushstrokes in the masterpiece of divine love. And God desires nothing more than for you to see what he has done for you. My friends, as we see time and again as we dive into scripture, the plans our God has for us, the intention with which he created us from the beginning, is so utterly amazing and unfathomable that it sounds downright heretical. Yet this is the truth that the incarnation makes manifest and which the church has proclaimed from the very beginning. God's desire in creating you was that you participate in his very life. By the very fact that you have a pulse, you can be sure of this. But, like any true lover, he will not force you to love him in return. Authentic love must always be free. If it is not free, it is not love. And yet, as we saw in the parable we have examined today, it is not a simple matter of our will, of our choosing him. We simply can't bring about the conditions by which the word will grow within us. No, the growth of God's presence within us is always a matter of grace. Thus we must ask the divine sower not only to speak his truth to us, but shower us with his grace in order that by it we might be cleansed of all that would keep the penetrating force of his word from entering and animating us. We must become a fertile soil, humbly receptive and meekly tillable. If we ask with sincerity, we can be sure God will grant us his grace. For such a prayer is but an imitative echo of the creative purpose of divine love.
Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.